Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 23, I want to talk to you this morning about how there's redemption in darkness. Right now, there's a lot of darkness around us. There's a lot of difficulty that people are experiencing. Obviously, there are those who are sick and we pray for them. We lift them up. Then there are those who are just isolated, maybe alienated. Some of you, you have found refuge in your home, and so you should. But it's getting to be a time of alienation away from other people. And maybe you just need some interaction. You need some hope. Then there are those who are facing financial issues. Even as we talked this last week, there are those that I have recognized that have lost their job or maybe their business can't open, their restaurant, their shop. There are all kinds of financial issues that people are facing. There are a lot of difficulties. There's a lot of darkness all around us. And then for those who are working all the time, their grocers, their medical personnel, some of them have been removed from their families. There's a lot of darkness But in the midst of all of this, do not forget, do not forget that Christ is our hope. Do not forget that Christ is the one who can redeem things even in dark days. In Luke chapter 23, as we'll look at verses 44 through 49, you see it so clearly. The supreme example of how God can bring redemption in the midst of of darkness. Now I know today is Palm Sunday and we think about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, but I want to I want to fast forward because we know that things began to deteriorate very quickly for Jesus and his relationship with the crowds, his relationship with the religious leaders that week, and it culminates on that Friday when Jesus is on the cross. And that's what Luke gives us here. Luke chapter 23 beginning in verse 44, it says Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened. Now, I was a Bible and English major at Blue Mountain College. And I know that English part of it still, it still surprises people. And they still hope that I will live up to that major one day. I always remind people that, One of the reasons I was an English major at Blue Mountain is because we majored in Mississippi English, and it was something that I could handle. But I was thinking about some of my classes, even as I was reading through this passage, that when you think about reading through any piece of literature and you see something like darkness used, you know that so often it is a literary feature speaking to something something more prominent, speaking to something that is more symbolic. Now, Let me say this, when you look at verse 44 and you see where darkness covered the earth, this is a historical event. This is some kind of physical manifestation of God in in his judgment upon sin. I'm convinced of that, that this was real. It's not some solar eclipse because it occurs around the Passover when there would have been a full moon at this point. This is rather a physical event of darkness. How eerie darkness can be. How ominous darkness can be. I mean, even in the night, when things are really, really dark, you and I, we we probably can get an eerie sense of things around us. I always say that sounds are more pronounced 
when they occur in absolute darkness. There's some type of maybe fear or something that we experience. Well, even in the day, let's say that this week a storm had come up and that you look out the window and it's, and it's like noon and you see darkness. It, it's rather eerie again to note that darkness. And when you come to the passage here, it says from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness covered all of the earth. That's basically from noon on Friday till 3 p.m. For three hours, darkness consumed this earth. It consumed this world. And it must have been an ominous sign for those who were there. But what I want you to hear this morning as we think about the physical darkness is also to recognize there was spiritual darkness. Spiritual darkness. Why did this occur? Obviously, it was in God's sovereignty. Uh, creation, nature, you might say, rebelled in some way. And it gave forth to darkness. But God was sovereign over it all. And God was working through all of these different things. And he was manifesting his message. What was he manifesting? What message was it? The darkness symbolized, in a sense, the separation of the fellowship in the Trinity. What do I mean by that? Well, remember what Jesus had prayed. Matthew gives us the account. He says that Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now think of that. The Son of God comes to the Father and says, I feel isolated, alienated. Why have you forsaken me? Because there was an interruption in the fellowship of the Trinity. For all of eternity, the Father and the Son had been in perfect fellowship together. The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, perfect fellowship all of eternity. And here on the cross, there is an interruption in the fellowship. Now, I, I still believe that Jesus was divine. Jesus was God. He never gave up his deity at any moment. I'm not saying that the Trinity itself was broken. What I'm saying is the fellowship. Why? Because Jesus had become sin itself. And the Father, the Father had turned his back upon that sin. The spiritual darkness that was there was about the breakage of fellowship. But obviously it also demonstrated the idea of judgment. Darkness often brings forth the idea of judgment. And there was the judgment of God, the wrath of God that was being poured out upon his son, upon this object of sin, Jesus. Now Jesus had no sin of his own, but he bore our sin and he had become that substitute, that sacrifice for us. So darkness, darkness overwhelmed the earth. This is the hope. This is the redemption that we see. How God is able to redeem the darkest and most difficult days. Because with God, with God, darkness gives way to light. Don't you forget that truth. With God, darkness will give way to light. How dark this was. And again, it was dark, a dark moment of history because the demonic scheming and the human treachery had seemed to bring this moment to pass where Jesus was on the cross. It seemed like 
that Satan and his demons were celebrating the death of the Son of God. Can you imagine how dark that was? How difficult it must have been? And yet, what do we know on this side of the cross and this side of the resurrection? That it was necessary for our salvation, that it was necessary for God to work through his son's sacrifice to provide for us. I remember the words of the Old Testament. Actually, it was spoken, or these words were spoken by a guy named Joseph. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he said, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In other words, the brothers, they meant evil toward Joseph. And Joseph knew that. But what Joseph knew was that God was sovereign and that God could take the most difficult, even those things that were evil intentioned, and he could work them together for the good of those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. Because that's what what Paul said in Romans chapter 8 verse 28, right? That we know that all things work together for the good of those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. See, the cross, to me, is the greatest example of how God can take that which was meant to be evil, that which looked dark, that which looked difficult, and God could somehow bring it to redemption. He could redeem it to bring something good out of it. I am convinced that these days that God can continue to do that. In the darkest and most difficult moments we face, And we face, we have faced some already, and we may face more. We may see much more coming our way in the next few weeks. But you and I should not forget that if Jesus died on the cross for us, he loved us. And if God would allow him to die on the cross for us, that he loves us, and that he can take anything, even the most difficult, darkest moment of our lives, and work it together for good. To me, it's one of the greatest truths that we hold as believers. To me, it's one of the greatest comforts that I have as a pastor and as a believer in the Lord Jesus is that no matter what comes our way and however it's intention, even in this fallen world, that God can take these things and that he can use them for our good and his glory. Because with God, with God, darkness gives way to light. But I want to show you also as we read through this passage that not only does darkness give way to light, disaster gives way to liberty. Look in verse 45 again. It says, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. The veil of the temple was torn in two. Now, this whole event seems disastrous when you're looking at it on an earthly level. That is, The end of Jesus, the end of his followers, the end of his kingdom, it seems to come to a disastrous type of conclusion when I read this. I mean, here's Jesus, people had followed him, but Jesus is being crucified. And from an earthly level, again, an earthly human level, it seems like this is a disaster. And then when you couple verse 45 with it, which says that the veil of the temple was rent or torn, that would seem like it was another disaster. I mean, 
when any part of your building, let's say, would be ripped apart, when something would happen, I mean, you would think of that naturally as a disaster, something that wasn't good. Matthew tells us that an earthquake occurs. An earthquake which literally splits the rocks during this time. Now, if we were to hear of earthquakes or we were to read about it perhaps in the paper, you and I would recognize that probably as something bad. It was a disaster. I mean, who would want an earthquake? I mean, we've had enough hurricanes here and obviously all these other kinds of things going on. Who, who would an earthquake? A disaster? But look at this. God in his wisdom and God in his power is able to take that which is to be disastrous. An earthquake, the end of Jesus. What he is able to do is to take that disaster and he is able to bring forth liberty or freedom. What type of liberty and freedom? What does it mean that the veil was torn in two? It means this. It means that you and I no longer have a barrier between us and God. You know, beforehand, that veil was there to demonstrate a separation between God and man. And only that one time a year could the priest go into the Holy of Holies. One time a year on the Day of Atonement. That was the only time to somehow represent us, humanity, the nation of Israel in particular. But what Jesus did on the cross what he did in his sacrifice is say, I am removing all barriers and I am opening up the opportunity for you to come directly to me. You can come into the holy of holies. You can experience the presence of God for yourself. Isn't that awesome? That in this disastrous moment, in the dark moment, what God does is he redeems it and he says, you come on in. You can have a relationship with me. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know the reason you and I can go to God right now and pour our hearts out to him and tell him what we're experiencing, tell him what we're feeling, that we can make our request before him, that we can also give him thanks just face to face. Do you know why we get to do that? It's because of the cross of Christ. Jesus Christ paid the price so that you and I, we don't need somebody else to go in between us. We can go directly to God, because God has a way of redeeming. God has a way of taking that which was disastrous and bringing liberty or freedom out of it. That's what you see in the passage. And I hope and pray, I hope and pray right now, you are going boldly before the throne. You're his child. He has adopted you into his family. There is no, there is no mediator between us except Jesus Christ himself. I hope that you can go before him. We've been praying at 5.17 each day, 5.17 a.m. and 5.17 p.m. Now, my prayers have been mostly during the p.m. time. 5.17 a.m., a little bit early for me, especially if I've got to go out and play a little basketball with my kids that day. By the way, I'm not doing too well in this situation right now. But 
other than that, hey, God can redeem even my basketball plays, I believe. But when I'm thinking about it, I can go to him at 517 because of what he did on the cross. I can pray. I can come boldly before the throne. There's redemption in darkness, the midst of darkness. God, God can work in his own way so that darkness gives way to light, so that disaster gives way to liberty. But also, as you continue to look at this passage, you see how really God shows us that through him, death will give way to life. Death can give way to life. It says in verse 46, and when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now, the scene again is Jesus on the cross. The cross, which in the New Testament day was a symbol of horror, a symbol of cruelty, brutality. It was a symbol of tragedy. The death of the cross was something that basically is indescribable. There have been those in the past through the movies, even the passion of the Christ, that they have tried to portray it. I'm not sure that we've ever captured the brutality of the cross, even through our expressions of art. It was a cruel form of punishment. As a matter of fact, no Roman citizen could even be crucified because the Romans could not envision that even one of their citizens would be put through such a horrific event, the cross. And here Jesus was dying on the cross. But when I read verse 46, as he is going through that moment of horror and brutality of the crucifixion, I see where he's still in charge. He's still in charge. He's still sovereign. Because note this, it says that he cries from the cross. There are seven cries from the cross. And this week, each day, I'm going to present uh, one or two in a social media capacity. I hope that you'll be looking for it this week. But here, this one, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then having said that, it says that he breathed his last. See, Jesus determined when he would die. He said, I'm committing my spirit into your hands right now. He breathed his last. No man took his life. No man took his life. Jesus was in charge even up until this moment at 3 p.m. Jesus was in charge. Jesus knew what he was doing. And he was doing it voluntarily and intentionally. He was dying for us. Nobody took his life. He willingly gave it. A few years ago, I was pastoring in Picayune, Mississippi, and now that we have these live stream, there's some of our friends that may be watching. And there was a, a lady, her name was Miss Hilda Wise. She was married to Mr. Wilford, and uh, they were a great couple, great, great couple. They were older when I got there. Of course, I was 23, so that meant everybody was older, basically, when I got there to pastor them. But they were, they were older, and I went down and I would visit them sometimes, and even later in my ministry there, they became homebound. 
And I would go by and I would sit on the porch with them and they would sit in the swing oftentimes, Miss Hilda would. And occasionally I would go out and I would take the Lord's Supper to them. And of course, I was a young preacher. I, I knew everything back then. Uh, I knew all of my theology and I knew all things church-wise. It's just kind of the way I was. You know, it's kind of like they say, uh, I may not have always been right, but I was never in doubt about things. And I went down, I was taking the Lord's Supper to Miss Hilda, and I had gone through this uh, presentation of the Lord's Supper, and I was getting ready to give her the cup for her to take, and I said something like, this represents the blood that was spilled for us. And as I was handing it to her, Miss Hilda stopped, and she said, wait, Brother Reggie. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, you misspoke. Well, again, I knew everything, and I thought, there's no way I just misspoke. I know my theology. I know whatever else. And she said, no, 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 you misspoke. And I said, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, you used the word spilled. Use the word spilled. I said, yes, ma'am. And I was thinking to myself, there was an old song. Some of you would remember, some of you wouldn't, but it was broken and spilled out. It was a song that they used to sing years ago, and perhaps that was in my mind. And I thought, yeah, that's acceptable language. And she said, no, 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 no. She said, when you use the term spilled, you infer that Jesus' death was accidental. Because a spill is an accident. When you spill something, it's accidental. Jesus didn't spill his blood for us. Jesus didn't accidentally give his blood for us. He was intentional. And I looked at Miss Hilda and I said, you know what? You're exactly right, Miss Hilda. I don't think I'll ever use that word again. Because what Jesus did for us was intentional. He was in charge. He says, Father, I commit my spirit into your hands. Just as Jesus had followed the will of the Father all of his life, Jesus still trusted the Father here at the end, and he still was committed to his will and his purpose because he knew he had to die for humanity. He had to die for our sins. He had to give himself, and he had to give himself willingly for us. Because with God, with God, death gives way to life. Now think about the symbol of the cross today. Think of it. In the New Testament time, it was a symbol of brutality, of horror, of terror. But now, for us, even in this Passion Week, even as we reflect back on what Jesus did, the cross for us is a sign of life. The cross for us is life. Some of you will wear a cross, maybe on a necklace or something like that which would have been unheard of in the New Testament time, but we do it today. Why? Because God redeemed the cross. That instrument that was meant to bring terror is the instrument that has been brought to salvation, redeemed so that we would know what life was like. I say to you that if Jesus can use the cross, this instrument of horror, if he can use it for his purposes, he can use anything and everything in our lives, even these difficult moments. What a praise. 
Now, what I continue to see here, though, what I love in verse 47 is that with God, denial gives way to lordship. Denial gives way to lordship. Look, look at what it says. Verse 47, so when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Now here's a centurion. He's the guy that's been in charge of the crucifixion. Must have been a tough guy. I mean, first of all, just to be a centurion, he had to be a tough guy. And then to carry out a crucifixion, something I just described to you as very barbaric, uh, something that was very brutal for him to be able to carry out these things. Can you imagine this centurion here? How he was a tough individual. He had seen a lot. He was hard-hearted, I believe. And here he comes and he recognizes within Jesus there's something different. There's something righteous. There's something innocent. Now, I used to teach down at Angola for several years. And one of the assistant wardens always cautioned me and said, Reggie, don't forget that everybody in this place is innocent. Don't forget when they talk to you, they're innocent. Because I would go in very gullible and I would hear their stories and all this. And he said, just know everybody thinks they're innocent. And I'm sure, I'm sure that when you look at this centurion and he would hear the words of those on the cross, the crucifixion before, he, he was hardened even toward their plight, toward whether or not they were innocent or not. He probably thought they were all guilty. And here he was carrying out his task. He obviously denied that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. He, he never even entertained it. I don't think he had up until this point. And he comes... And he glorifies God and says, certainly this was a righteous man. There's something in the way that Jesus faced persecution. There's something in the way that Jesus faced uh, difficulty. There's something in the way that Jesus faced the cross that had spoken to this centurion. A few weeks ago, I said that we were made for this moment. We as Christians, we as believers, we are made for these days. We are made. We have been fashioned and formed for difficulty. And I pray that in the way we face it, in the way we go through everyday difficulties, that somehow it will be a magnet to draw other people into the kingdom of God. That we would mimic our Lord's actions in such a way that people would come to know him, even through these moments. Hey, certainly this was a righteous man. Luke, in his gospel, also in the book of Acts, he will show us that all Gentile rulers, all Gentile rulers will find Christ or his disciples will find them innocent. Always. Go back and check me. Look at it. Why? Because Luke is the only Gentile writer of the scripture, I believe. And he wants, to, he wants all of those he's writing to, a primarily a Gentile audience, he wants them to know that Jesus had not come to establish some governmental kingdom. He had come to establish a spiritual kingdom. And also what he wants them to do is to mimic 
the work of this centurion, the words of this centurion, and that they would recognize that Jesus was not only innocent, but as Matthew records the words of the centurion, that he is the son of God. The centurion said, this truly must have been the son of God. There's debate whether or not this was true salvation. I am convinced that he came to Christ and it was true salvation. Church tradition says that the guy's name was Longinus and that he was from Cappadocia and that he went back and he testified of Christ and he was even martyred for his faith. Because with God, denial can give way to lordship. You and I, we have moments right now where people have denied Christ. They've denied following him. Maybe they've done it because of materialistic reasons, whatever reason. I don't know. But we have the opportunity to show them who Christ is. And to pray, even as I think Luke prayed for his readers, that they would come to know Christ. That they would make a similar confession. A confession that this centurion made. Let me, let me give you this lastly. Man, this, this is good. This is good. It says, verse 48, the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breast and returned. So hear that? Even those who were standing around, they saw what had happened and there was something within them that said this wasn't right. And they beat their breast and they returned. They, they were in a state of despair. But look in verse 49. It says, but all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now Luke points out the role of these women, not only here, but later in this chapter and at the beginning of the next chapter. These women were standing there. They were watching the death of Jesus. And what despair. What despair. Some of them had been, well, some of them had been released from demonic oppression. Mary Magdalene. She had been released. She had been freed. Others had followed him because he had forgiven them. He had... He had worked in their lives. And here they were. They had followed this carpenter. They had followed this rabbi. And he had led them to the cross. And here they are. And you can imagine the pain. Can you imagine the pain, though, of his mother? Mary? We know she was there at the cross. Can you imagine how Mary, who for 30 plus years had been his earthly mom, and had watched him, had taken care of him. For 30 plus years, she had seen her son. I have said before, and I say again, that I never try to underestimate or diminish the pain of anybody who's going through any loss. All of us have our uniqueness, all of us have our stories. But there is something that is unique about the wound of losing a child. Something that is so difficult. And here Mary is. Here Mary is looking and seeing her son die. Despair. 
Later in the chapter, it tells us that Joseph of Arimathea takes Jesus' body and prepares it as best he can because they have to prepare it very quickly because the Sabbath is coming. And they lay Jesus in a new tomb. And it tells us that these women, those who had followed him from Galilee, that they go back and they begin to prepare all the spices and the fragrance and all the things that they need to do to be able to prepare his body when the Sabbath is passed. Can you imagine the despair, though? But what I love about this is with God, despair gives way to laughter. Despair gives way to joy. Despair gives way to celebration. Because in the next chapter, and this we're going to talk about the resurrection. We're going to talk about post-resurrection experiences next week. But when you get to the next chapter, who is it that comes? that will come to the tomb, it will be the women who will come and who will see that Jesus is not there. They will hear that he is risen. They will understand that Jesus had fulfilled his purpose and that Jesus was alive. So the women who had a front row view of his death, they will be the witnesses who will have a front row view of his life, of his resurrection itself. Because like the old psalmist says, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. My friends, you don't forget that. We may weep for a night. We may go through a moment of despair, but you do not forget that joy comes in the morning. Friday was so difficult. Friday was so dark in the life of our Lord. And yet it was necessary because on Sunday morning, on Sunday Easter morning, he experienced resurrection and life. And he gives to us a sense of hope even this day. Because redemption can come in darkness. God can take all those things and he can redeem them for, again, our good and his glory. I love this passage, especially as God has given it to us here in these moments and these days. Because as I read through it, as I hear the ultimate hope we have in Jesus, we hear the redemption that comes in darkness. I know that my God who brought redemption in darkness then is a God who brings redemption in darkness even now. I do not profess to you to know everything that God is doing because his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. His views are higher than my views. I, I can't. But I believe that right now in a time where uh, people are experiencing fear from a virus, when I see people that are physically getting ill, when I see people who are losing their jobs, when I see people that feel isolated, alienated, even in the midst of all that, my hope, my confidence is that, that our God can take these moments and redeem them for our lives, for his kingdom purposes. Maybe it's, maybe it's some people realizing how frail we are as humanity. Recognizing our human weaknesses. And maybe through seeing our human weaknesses, human frailty, they will turn to the one that never fails. To the one that always has power and strength. To the one that always comes through for us. Maybe that's how God is working out. 
maybe there will be people who will come to salvation. You know, before this, we had the little green balls as a church that we had handed out, and we were asking people to have gospel conversations. God's given us time, and God has given us opportunity, sometimes even from a distance, to have gospel conversations. Wouldn't it be amazing that God would take these moments and then he would bring salvation out of it? May I also be frank with some of us who are believers. Some of us, some of you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. What if God took this moment to wake us up? To renew us? To revive us? To show us that all the other stuff we've been depending upon, all that other stuff, all that stuff is fleeting and temporary. It's only through him. If God would work through us, if God would bring some of our families back together, if God even would strengthen marriages during this time and parent-child relationships, if God would give us some moments away from all the craziness of the world, if God would do some of that even during this time, wouldn't it be a, a way in which God redeemed that which was dark and difficult for our good and for his glory? I say to you, our God, our God is in the business of bringing redemption in darkness. You never forget that. And if there's one person right now that's watching this or that will watch it this week that needs to talk about a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ, I encourage you to text. Text NEEDS. To 97,000. Text that word needs. And let us talk with you. Or maybe there's some of you right now that. You just need extra prayer. You need, you need God to show you redemption. God needs to redeem some things in your life. You need renewal. Text needs. To that 97,000 number. Because God can take your life. Even during these difficult moments. He can use it for your good and for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these moments. As difficult and dark as they are, we know that you can work through them. God, we continue to intercede on behalf of our brothers and sisters who are facing these difficulties. But God, I pray that today that you would most impress upon them the hope that you give. I pray that this morning there are those who would watch this and who would give their lives to you for the first time. There are those of my brothers and sisters who are listening that just need to be renewed this morning. And I pray that you would do it. You would show how if you can take the cross, a symbol of death, and you can bring life, that you can take even right now these moments of sickness and pain and that you can show life and victory and hope through it. God, we trust you. We give ourselves to you. We surrender. For there is no one else like you. The victorious king. The hope that we have. The love of our lives. We commit ourselves to you. In Jesus name. Amen.